Before we dig into the scriptures, I'd like to make a correction. Um, a few weeks ago, at the end of the sermon, I've had three points, and one of the points was that trials come out of nowhere, and trials don't come out of nowhere. Uh, they may seem like they come out of nowhere. They may come at the most unexpected times, but we know that trials come by the gracious hand of our good Father with the purpose of glorifying His name and for conforming us to the image of His Son. So I didn't want to leave that unclear, and I misspoke in that way. So that's one correction. I'm sure there's many more I could make. But uh, praise God that He is always faithful, and that we are never out of His hands. Um, how many of you were outside Friday evening at around 9 o'clock or so? Have you ever seen anything like that? The amazing lightning display Friday night. It was like this massive dome of light flashing and streaking across the sky. It filled the entire sky in every direction and it went on for, it seemed like, hours. I, I don't remember one quite that spectacular. Such awesome power in our Creator's heavens. It was amazing. We've studied the, dem the demonstration of power of God over the megastorm at sea when Christ instantly calmed that storm. He just muzzled it, be still, and it stopped instantaneously. The water became like glass. We saw him last week. We saw this Christ come up to this man who was evidently filled with perhaps thousands of demons. And again, with the authoritative command, sent them fleeing into the hogs. What a powerful, powerful Savior this is. The power of Jesus Christ, it is awesome. And I mean that in the literal sense. It produces awe in us when we see that. But it is not always revealed in such elaborate or breathtaking scenarios. Jesus loved the multitudes that gathered around him, but he loved the individual men and women and children that made up those multitudes. And in that love was great power and deep, deep sensitivity. Jesus leaves no one who comes to him without hope. Let's pray as we begin to study. Heavenly Father, we have been so graciously blessed and given the Word of God. And we have this particular account this morning recorded by your man Mark who you spoke through to give us your intention, a dis display of who you are, a revelation of you. Lord, please help us to understand you and see you in this passage. And Lord, help us to then live according to that faith that you give us. Humble us, Lord, that we could learn. Lord, there are people this morning experiencing things in different ways like this woman, like this synagogue ruler. We ask that you would, would move in us, not so that everything becomes good, but so that Jesus Christ is glorified. And we grow in faith and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Verse 21. It begins, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. Uh, One version says, So he stayed by the sea. Because of this crowd that was massed upon that beach, Jesus was there. And if we skip down to verse 24, we see kind of support of this. He says, So Jesus went with this man, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. This great multitude. Here, however, in the midst of this, we will see the specific mercy of Jesus Christ. A specific mercy of Christ. The constant great multitude. As we've been reading, it is always there. A great multitude, a very large crowd of thousands had gathered on the western shore of Galilee, south of Capernaum. Luke says that the multitude welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. They had been waiting there. His arrival back near his home base of Capernaum was met with high expectation, anticipation. He's been gone but a day and the crowd is there. Now this is quite a dramatic change from what had happened the day before. For you remember at at the beach there near Garasa, and he had delivered this community from their public enemy number one. He delivered the demons out of them, and the man was miraculously transformed. And so they voted in Jesus as mayor and gave him a home in the community. No. They said, get out of here. We do not want you. Be on your way. So they sent him across, back across that sea. Get him out of here. But here we have thousands upon this beach. And they cannot wait for Jesus to come back. And it says the multitude here, it's described as thronging Jesus. The word literally means to compress, to be tightened. They swarm around Jesus like one solid mass of humanity. If, if you have ever waited outside the entry door to enter a venue for a very popular concert or a highly anticipated athletic event, you may have felt what this was like. I remember at times being able to stand there and and literally you could pick your feet up off the ground and because it was so tight, you wouldn't move. You wouldn't fall. You wouldn't go either direction. It was so tight. You almost lose your breath. You get the sense that this was the kind of crowd now that had come to come after this Jesus. I only wish at that point in my life that I had been in such a crowd wanting to really get to Jesus. But you imagine the scene surrounding Christ. He steps from that boat onto the shore. And it's not a peaceful setting. It's not where you could easily come and go as you please and get as close to Jesus as you might want. It seemed that everyone wanted to get a piece. Everybody wanted to get a piece of this massive figure of stunning power and authority. And suddenly, in the midst of this jam of people, the desperate man determinedly threads his way through them all. And behold, verse 22, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And in that moment, he revealed this ruler's heart for Jesus. This ruler's heart for Jesus. His name is Jairus. He is well known in these parts because he is a synagogue official. He has very important responsibility. He is a layman. He is not a Pharisee. He is not a Sadducee. 
But his responsibilities give him great respect and influence in this community. He was in charge of the following, the upkeep of the building, the proper conduct of the service, the safeguarding of the Torah scrolls that hung around the wall of the synagogue, the choosing of what the Torah reading would be and who would be the reader, the choosing of those who would pray in the synagogue, and he supervised the synagogue school. He had his hands full and these were important duties. And he was a highly respected man. But in the midst of all this, he must, he must have had a close connection with the Pharisees. Certainly Jairus understood the hatred boiling in the cauldron of the Pharisees' hearts towards this Jesus. Already by this time they are plotting to try to kill Christ. Some suggest that perhaps Jairus may have even been a ruler at the very synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus had previously delivered a man from a demon. We don't know, but it's a possibility. The beginnings of the early church described in Acts include some notable synagogue rulers. In Acts 18, verse 8, we have the man Crispus. And we read there, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians... Hearing, believed, and were baptized. In Acts 18, verse 17, it tells of Sosthenes. Then all of the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. And then later in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, we hear Paul describing this man. He describes him as a believer in Christ. And Paul says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother. Two synagogue rulers have come to faith in Christ. But this leader, Jairus, he's nothing like the secretive Pharisee Nicodemus. Remember him, he comes to Jesus, but he comes in the cover of night so as not to be discovered. That is not this man. The very first thing we see of Jairus is the worship of this synagogue ruler. The worship of this synagogue ruler. Matthew described Jairus' arrival to Jesus with the word proskuneo, which means to worship, literally worship. In the presence of Jesus, this heartbroken synagogue ruler literally falls down on his face at the feet of Jesus Christ. What a clear demonstration of utter humility, hopelessness, but the highest honor given to Jesus Christ, who is this man's only hope. And then he begs him, begs him earnestly. And he says, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. Look at this man, this daddy's heart. This daddy's heart for his little girl. It is desperate. He is begging earnestly. He is imploring Jesus, he's, please, please come. It is affectionate. He says, my little da- daughter. The word daughter there is thugatrion. And it literally means a daughterling. It's a father's warm and endearing title for his own little girl, his own child. In Luke 8, chapter 40, or verse 42, it tells us that she was only about 12 years old. This daddy loved that little girl. And his heart is painful. It is full of pain. This child is at the point of death. 
And the word used here is interesting. In the study of Scripture, there is a topic called eschatology. It's the study of the last things. This precious daughter has arrived at what is written as the eschatos. These are the last things of her life. She is desperately holding on to the thin thread of life. And we see that he is a faithful man. He has a faithful heart. He says to Jesus, come and lay your hands on her and she will live. This broken desperation and deep confidence, they're tightly entwined in one expression. It's as if he's saying, you and only you can give her life. How does Jesus respond? Verse 24, Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. They were pressing about him. Time is running out. A great multitude followed him. But he is on the way to this 12-year-old girl who is on the brink of death. Perhaps she's even died, according to Matthew. And so we have Jesus, Jairus, Jesus' disciples, and this massive crowd making their way as steadily as possible to the leader's family home. Jesus loved these people. Jesus loved the individual men, women, and children that made up these huge masses. I ask you this question. Did he always find a way to minister to everyone in need? Have you thought about that? Did Jesus, did he, was he able, did he find a way to minister to everyone who was in need? Impossible, some would say. But I challenge that. We never read an account of Jesus turning anyone away because of unimportance or a lack of time. It is amazing when you read the scriptures and I urge you, dig into these things. Hunger after them. It is amazing, just this point alone. Matthew 4.24, Then his fame went throughout all Israel and they brought, him, brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. When evening came, in Matthew 8, 16, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. Matthew 12, verse 15, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Luke 4.40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them. Every one of them. And healed them. And Luke 6.19, and the whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him and healed them all. Perhaps practically we think, how could that be? I have no idea how that can be. But there was something happening in Judea at that time that the world has never seen. Tens of thousands of people miraculously healed instantaneously. But, again, could, could there come a scenario because of time and place and demand when Christ's power and compassion facing the overwhelming need would fall short. We have been following the developing story so far of a very specific demonstration of mercy. 
specifically towards a distraught but believing father. But now, in the middle of this story, there is a sudden interruption that threatens to destroy this mission of mercy. Why? Why in the midst of this, this well-intended desire to come and show mercy, why does this happen? Because Christ's powerful and specific mercy is also an available mercy. It is specific, it is powerful, and it is available. The available mercy of Christ, beginning with verse 25. We have a woman in great devastation here. It says, A certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She is hemorrhaging. She is discharging blood. And this past week, it was very interesting, God's timing in these things, His, His providence. I spoke this past week with a good friend. His girlfriend was diagnosed several months ago with the cancerous tumor in her uterus. In spite of the advanced medical tools and skills of today, it had caused un- ongoing bleeding for quite some time before it was finally discovered. She had had this bleeding and it took such a long time, and th- but they finally did. And it reminded me very much of this woman. It was a different setting there. Verse 26 says, And she suffered many things or endured many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had. Now, that might be fine if it were not for the fact of the rest of that verse. She was no better. She was no better. She grew worse. Look at this woman. She has experienced countless failures. Countless failures. What were these many things that she had suffered from many physicians? It's interesting. In the Jewish Talmud, which is it's the primary text used by Jewish rabbis regarding the law and theology. And there it describes several of what we would call rather unusual cures. A few of the recommended therapies for such a condition of this woman include, first of all, drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Does that work, Keith? (laughs) He's our pharmacist in the group. Number two, a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine, administered with the summons. Arise out of your flow of blood. Here's the third one. Carrying about the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain type of a cloth container. It sounds as if this woman may have tried these and just about everything else on the list. In addition to that, she is sick and penniless. She had spent all that she had. Skin for skin, wrote Matthew Henry, and all that a man has will he give for life and health. She spent all she had upon physicians. Luke in chapter 8 tells us she could not be healed by any. And her life had become hopeless. She was no better. No better. She grew worse. And her condition had trapped her in a cage of loneliness. Inescapable cage of loneliness. First of all, her bleeding. It made her unfit for marriage. You would ask why. Well, Leviticus 
2018 says, If a husband were to have union with his wife during her sickness and bleeding, both of them would be cut off from their people. Her bleeding had gone on for 12 years. She would have been unfit for marriage according to these to this to the scripture in Leviticus. Secondly, she was ceremonially unclean. This means she had not been allowed into the temple to worship for the past 12 years. You get that? We love to come together. We love to come together and worship God. She had not stepped inside of the synagogue or the temple for 12 years now because she was ceremonial and clean. When in public, it would have been one thing to suffer quietly. But when in public, she was required to declare that she was unclean so that everyone would know to keep their distance. And then fourthly, her life was isolation. Even family and friends would have stayed away. Let's compare these two individuals we have been introduced to so far. Jairus and the woman. We have a man, we have a woman. Jairus is wealthy, the woman is penniless. Jairus is popular, the woman is an outcast. Jairus is honored in his position, the woman is embarrassed by her condition. Jairus is a synagogue leader. The woman is a synagogue exile. Jairus is the father of a 12-year-old daughter. The woman is the bearer of a 12-year burden and affliction. This woman has tried many physicians, spent every penny seeking freedom from a difficult and lonely life, and she's now worse off than she's ever been for the past 12 years. But, but, when she heard about Jesus, verse 27, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. There were reports about Jesus. I, it's, uh, the English Standard Version says, when she heard these reports about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, in the press of all these people. She was not following Levitical requirements here. She is not saying she's unclean. She's not staying back. She is desperate. And she is entering into this crowd, this press, and she touches his garment. It was a desperate decision. It was a desperate decision on her part. But what does she have to lose? <clears throat> Jewish clothing or garments in those days had tassels attached to the hem in keeping with the instruction from Moses' law in Numbers 15. It reads in verse 38, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord on, of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own hearts and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. It was a simple part of the clothing, but had an important inner purpose. It was to prompt people to remember the Lord's commands, to obey them and not pursue the ways of the world. In Luke's gospel, he gives a bit more detail, and he says, she came up behind him and touched the fringe or the tassel of his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Her faith. This is faith. People ask, what is faith? This is living faith. 
It's demonstrated in three steps here. She heard, she came, and she touched. Why? It tells us. Because she believed Jesus would make her whole. That is living faith. And immediately, immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. There was an instantaneously, instantaneous dispersion of power. This is a fascinating portion of this scripture. First of all, to the woman, her body was completely and instantly made whole. It was a full recovery in literally no elapsed time. It just happened suddenly. And she knew it without a doubt. But not only did she know it in her mind, Mark reports, Mark's report says that she felt it in her body, that she was healed, she was made whole. She completely was restored. Dispersion of power to the woman from the master. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself the power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Power had gone out of him. This phrase is found only once in all of Scripture, in this gospel at this point. In a very real, physically, spiritually sense, the dunamis power, the force, had issued out of Jesus to this woman. I would like to provide more detailed explanation, but it's not very readily available. This is a miracle of an omnipotent God upon which he bestowed power in a unique way upon a woman who believed. Some commentators suggest that the woman technically made Jesus ceremonially unclean. One well-respected scholar indicated Jesus' point was that the needs of God's people are a higher priority for him than ceremonial observances. Therefore, he did not make an issue of the woman's technical violation of the law. He was very gentle in dealing with this woman who had suffered so long. I respectfully disagree. The reason Jesus did not make an issue of the woman's technical violation of the law is because there was no violation of the law. She was healed the instant she touched him. Power went out from Jesus to her. No uncleanness went out from her into him. At no moment in this issuing of healing power did the perfect righteousness of Christ ever falter, compromise, or come into question. It is somewhat like suggesting that night can somehow make the sun dark. It's, it's illogical. It does not make sense. When darkness encounters light, darkness disappears into non-existence. In the same way, the woman's uncleanness did not for a moment jeopardized the perfect spotlessness of Christ, the Lamb of God. It did not, and it could not. His perfect power and righteousness destroyed every vestige of uncleanness in the woman's body. What a powerful God. Nothing can touch Him, and yet He can totally transform whatever He chooses. Yet, all of this was undetected by the disciples. But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging around you? And you say, Who touched me? Now, there's a bit of cynicism here. 
seems to come out of these men. These are the same fellows who rebuked Jesus a day earlier about his sleeping on the boat during this mega storm and not caring about them. But I would have likely been right there with them. After all, the little literal answer to Jesus would have been, well, where do you want me to begin, Jesus? That there are probably dozens who have touched you in the last 30 seconds. However, it becomes clear that there are two on this scene, two people on this scene who know exactly the answer to Jesus' question. The ESV Study Bible points out the difference between mere proximity to Jesus and the trust that reaches out to Him for rescue. Thousands were on the road at that moment walking. Dozens had already touched Him, but one had touched Him in faith believing. Brothers and sisters, there are millions of people seated in churches around the globe during this 24-hour period of, of Sunday. Many of them in clear gospel preaching churches. But we know that not all are touched by the Son of God. Think on that. Proximity is not the key here. Faith is the key. The delivered woman that is discovered. First of all, Jesus identifies her. in Verse 32, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing. I am one who believes that by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Jesus knew precisely who touched him. At that moment, he turned to look directly at her. As one writer described, his question was not motivated by ignorance, but in order to pull her out of the crowd. Jesus intended to bring her out in order to draw her to himself. And then the woman discovers him. Verse 33, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And I prefer how the King James says this here. Knowing what was done in her. The woman saw that she was not hidden. And so how does she respond? She is in fear and trembling. Having gone into the pressing crowd, she would have contaminated many of them many people with her uncleanness and rendered them unavailable to worship at the temple until they were purified. But there's a far greater fear here than public humiliation. Something else has gripped her. She has witnessed within herself literally the power of the living God. She was in the presence of the Messiah and she knows that. This is the very Son of the living God Most High. And so suddenly, as we've seen already in the Gospel of Mark, when people come into the presence of Christ and realize who He is, demons, Gentiles, Jews, they fall on their face and they are filled with fear and trembling. This woman is none, no different. She realizes who He is. She, she had a sense of who He was as she pursued Him and touched His garment. But now it is confirmed. This is the living God. He has completely restored what I have fought with for 12 years. Knowing what was done in her. It is more clear than knowing what had happened to her. A healing had not simply happened to her. 
It was much deeper. This Jesus had caused a complete wholeness to be in her. He made it come into being. And in response, she is now falling before him. And another similar word that we saw with Jairus. This is prospipto. It means to prostrate oneself in homage. She, like Jairus, is at his feet. And she is confessing. We read that she told him the whole truth. That would have included the desperation of, of why she had come, how she had snuck up behind him, her un uncleanness as she came, that she had touched him while she was still bleeding and unclean. But now she proclaims she is whole, clean, healed, and free. To this believing woman, this shaken woman, Christ declares deliverance. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. You see what Jesus does here. He uses the same word that Jairus used. He says, daughter, thugatrion, my daughterling, my precious daughter. Jesus tenderly gives this woman the same dear and precious title that the desperate father had used for his own 12-year-old child. Daughter, writes Henry, thy faith had made thee whole, Note, Christ puts honor upon faith because faith gives honor to Christ. That's, that's so important. Christ puts honor upon faith because faith gives honor to Christ. Having been on the fringes, in one of the study Bibles it says, having been on the fringes of the crowd surrounding Jesus, the woman now finds herself welcomed into the family of God. The Apostle John wrote, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, that is this woman. She is our sister. Someday we will greet her as such. She is the daughter of God. Your faith, again it's stated by one of the commentators, she believed that he cured, not as a prophet by virtue derived from God, but as the very Son of God, by a virtue inherent in himself. It was power of God through him as the very Son of God. Jesus says, it is your faith that has saved you. Now we understand that it is not simply faith that saves. It is the object of that faith. No matter how sincerely one had faith in this podium here or in this weak man standing behind it, such faith would not provide you healing from bleeding, nor would it grant you righteous standing before God. Faith is the tool, it is the instrument through which we take hold of Christ, wrote one commentator. Christ is the power, He is the cause of our righteousness, and He is our salvation. He is worthy, He is the healer, He is our Savior. And he says, your faith has made you well. It's the Greek word sozo. And besides meaning to heal or make well, it is often translated in the New Testament as to save or deliver. Further explanation here is given in one commentary. It says, the form of the Greek verb translated has made you well can also be rendered has made you whole. It indicated that her healing was complete. It is the same Greek word often translated to save and is the normal New Testament word for saving from sin, which suggests that the woman's faith also led to spiritual salvation. 
Look where and how sozo is used in other Testament, New Testament accounts. I'll give you a few. The angel to Mary. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will sozo, or save, his people from their sins. Jesus to the woman who had come into the Pharisee's house and washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She said to her, Your faith has sozo you, has saved you. Go in peace. To the disciples, in Matthew 18, verse 11, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to sozo, or to save that which was lost. In all of these instances, it was Jesus Christ who sozo saves. It says, be healed. It's in what's called the present imperative. What that means is it's a command to do something in the future that involves continuous or repeated action. The woman is now healthy in body and in spirit and is con- to continue that way. To continue in the grace of Jesus Christ. And then he says, be healed of your affliction. Now, this word affliction is the word mastix. And it is translated twice, literally, with the word scourging. It is actually a form of it, or derivative, mastigo. In Mark 10, 34, and Luke 18, 33, it's used as Jesus prophesied the brutal scourging He would receive leading up to His crucifixion. You see what this is telling us? This past 12 years for this woman has been a horrible existence. But the mastics, the affliction, the scourging had been used by God to drive her to Jesus Christ. There she finds healing. There she finds life. I bet if I ask her in heaven someday, was that 12 years worth it? She would say, every second. For it brought me to Jesus. We've shared before how we've spoken with some of our brothers and sisters in in, in uh, Lebanon, who had been quietly leading peaceful lives in Syria as Muslims in that area. ISIS comes in. Assad raises his military power. Rebels come up and the land is laid waste and they are fleeing for their lives. And they come to Lebanon with nothing. They've left it all through all of the violence. Some lost their lives. Some lost their family members. And they arrive in Lebanon And they meet a young couple, a young couple that we've had here, who helps them with their baby, helps them get fuel in the cold winter, provides medical help to them, and begins to tell them about Jesus Christ, how without this Savior, they are lost, and they can know the Creator of the universe, their own Creator. But He is holy and righteous, and they can never come to Him unless they trust in Jesus Christ. They repent from their idolatry and false religion and come and follow the God-man, Jesus Christ. And they are like this woman. They are completely made new. They are a new creation, says 2 Corinthians 5. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And you ask them, And as sad and as tragic as their past was, it was what they are grateful for because it brought them to Jesus. For them, it was a mastix, a scourging as they went through it. But they were set free and they found life eternal 
They found their maker, their creator. At the end of that trial, that trail of trials. Praise God for what is going on, even in the world today, as it did at that time. And then Jesus said something that only he has made possible for her to follow. He says, go in peace. It's, it's a word, Irene, and it's very similar to the Hebrew word, shalom. It's a sure and safe peace. It's not a ceasefire temporarily. It's a complete peace, particularly with God. This woman came with great hope so that she could find a physical peace in her warring body that had fought her for 12 years. She now leaves in peace, not only physically, but in peace with God Himself. This peace with God, this is what the gospel is about. It is the ultimate treasure for all men and women, but it is only available to those whom Jesus has sozo, or made whole, saved. Paul wrote in Romans 5, he said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We are not His enemies. So many people think, well, God, I'll take Him or leave Him. Yeah, I, I respect Him. Or I think there's something up there. And not realize that at that very moment, they are defying their living Creator. And they are like Lucifer in heaven, and they are like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, shaking their fist, we will do it my way. I will live for myself. And they will not come under the authority, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But God has come through the person of Jesus Christ to bring us peace. So you see, Jesus created this peace. Colossians 1.20 And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. That's how we have peace with God. It didn't come by anyone's effort. It didn't come by denying oneself or by pursuing this religious effort. It came through the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross where He took upon Himself our sin and died in our place and paid the full payment of our sin. And Jesus gives this peace. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then the gospel is the preaching of this peace. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. In this particular story, scripture that really stands out is that come to me said Christ all of you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light you come to Christ Jesus and you receive this peace by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. You trust that His death on the cross was in substitution for you and that He has paid the price for your sin and that His resurrection brings you eternal life.
If you seek Christ, I guarantee you Jesus will have time for you as he did for this woman. If you seek Christ, Jesus will have power and mercy for you. You may have been trapped in sin's cage for many, many years. doesn't matter what sin it is or how long it has been. Christ can conquer and set you free. Don't wait. Don't wait until you've spent all your resources of time, emotion, intellect, money, and everything else of value until you come to the one who will give you peace. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him. His word, prayer, fellowship, learn of this Christ and he will bring you new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so indebted to you forever. For you have paid the greatest price to purchase the scum. Those who were your enemies, those who were weak and helpless, those who were sinners in the face of God. Lord, we owe you everything, and we thank you that you saved this dear woman. And I thank you for your salvation to us. Lord, I pray that we will take this gospel. Could, could it be any more beautiful, more powerful? But help us. Fill us with your spirit. Use us to make Christ known in this city. Lord, help us that we would seek after you regularly, daily, to know you. And not just be in proximity to you, but to touch you and believe that you will change us. In your name I pray. Amen.